You're listening to Father Kirby Longo's Homilies, powered by Mountain Catholic. Father Kirby is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena and pastor of Christ the King University Parish in Missoula, Montana. Session two. So now we're going to dig into documents themselves. And tonight I'm going to shoot for Dave Verboom and then one line from Lumen Gentium, which is in many ways the most controversial line, but I think uh, what the document's really pushing at. So um, I think both of these are great documents to dig into. Um, so we'll do that, but we'll begin with prayer right now. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you uh, for the continued opportunity to get a renewed sense of what you want for the church, our mission set before us in the modern world. In particular, this evening, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures, for your revelation to us, the way in which you speak to us, both through the church and through your words and the Holy Scriptures. Thank you for the apostles, for their courage in handing on the faith. And we thank you for the continued uh, grace that you bestow upon the church. Help us to grapple with what that means today uh, for us as we go out on mission and also for the church at large. We ask that you enlighten us through these words, the words that you, the church that you've given us. And so pour your grace upon us, pour the Holy Spirit upon us uh, as we go forth today. Help us to grow in fellowship and in love of you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so tonight we've got a lot more questions as we go along. Um, hopefully I'll set them up well enough or ask provocative enough questions that we can really dig in to what all this means. So, Dave Verboom, I just, I, I enjoy the style of, the style of digging into a document where you actually kind of just go through it. Um, part by part, because I'd rather kind of dig into one thing and know it well than get a sort of surface level uh, grasp of many things. So this document's broken up really well into, it has a good flow, so I think we can just kind of go through it. Um, I might read a section from here, you know, here to there, but I'm going to probably just kind of paraphrase as we go along and then dig into the sections that really that I think really speak to an issue of our day or speak to a, uh, a problem that the church is trying to address in that particular time, most of which are still just as relevant today. So chapter one, which is, you know, the first five paragraphs, you'll see in every, well, really sixth paragraphs, but the sixth one we'll dig into a little bit. In every document in the Second Vatican Council, pretty much, at least the, the main four constitutions, are they start with the kerygma. So actually, if you ever want like a beautiful five-minute eleva- ele- elevator kerygma, like <clears throat> someone says, what's Christianity? Uh, great examples are these formulations in these documents. In many ways... They're much like, they're sort of a modern version of St. Paul's homily in the Areopagus, where he gives the overview of all of Christian history, or the whole history of salvation, not just Christian history. And in this, in Dave Erboom, it zeroes in on God's revelation to the world, and so the ways in which God has manifest himself. So that starts with nature, moves into... God revealing himself to Abraham and sort of through the Old Testament covenants and into uh, the incarnation and then the church. And so it kind of stops there. And then Lumen Gentium, which is about the church as the light of the nations, almost it starts back at the beginning, but goes through much quicker that self part of salvation history that's sort of in the scriptures and then picks up in more detail with 
the founding of the church and the way in which the church works in the world. And so you get through the over the course of the documents the, a sort of continued conversation about the whole of salvation history. And so it's a beautiful way. You've kind of got to tie them together uh, as you read the documents. Or else it just seems like this, they're saying the same thing at the beginning of each document. It almost seems like a copy and paste, but you, it's a different focus in each manifestation. It also, I, I might be giving them a little too much credit. I don't think I am, because there were different groups that wrote each document, so they might have honestly been doing the same thing. But the, but I, but there is a, a beautiful focus in each one on the matter at hand. So Dei Verbum, the Word of God, a dogmatic constitution. If you read this, which is a dogmatic constitution, and then you go right back and read Dei Filius, which is the dogmatic con- constitution from Vatican I, you'll see a much different style. And we'll, we'll push into that at the end of the course a little more uh, as we talk about what changed at Vatican II. But there's a different voice uh, in this one. In, in many ways, it's, well, it's a little bit longer so they can flush things out a little more because Dei Filius is only six pages. Uh, and this is something like, well, it's not that much longer. There's, there's a little bit of commentary in this version of it, so maybe 20, 25 pages, which post-printing press is nothing, so it's fine. So the first five paragraphs give us the history of salvation, and the sixth paragraph is the, is the part where, where, in many ways, we get to not the point of the first five, but the, but the thrust uh, that God has manifested himself in history with enough clarity for us to know him by reason alone. That doesn't mean to know who God is the way we know him, but to know that God exists by means of reason alone. And so I'll I'll just read. it's, It's a reaffirmation of the statement from Vatican I. But it says, Through divine revelation, God chose to show forth and communicate himself and the eternal decisions of his will regarding the salvation of men, that is to say, he chose to share with those, with them those divine treasures which totally transcend the understanding of the human mind. As the sacred synod has affirmed, God, the beginning and end of all things, can be known with certainty from created reality by the light of human reason. So that first goes all the way back to St. Paul in Romans, saying, when you look at the world, it's obvious God exists. You look at all the different things in the world, it's obvious that we can know that there is a God. Now, the reason the reason why Vatican I affirmed this so strongly, I don't know if any of you ever took a Philosophy 101 course and read Immanuel Kant. Has anyone ever tried to read Immanuel Kant? Many in human history have tried to read Immanuel Kant. Very few have successfully read Immanuel Kant. In, so much so that he wrote the, I think the, I forget the name of the document because it's the one that no one ever really read. But then he wrote a document explaining his main philosophical treatise that was called A Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics, which is sort of like, this is the intro to this treatise that no one understood, and you can read this intro and then hopefully you can understand this treatise, what I'm trying to say. But everyone just ended up reading the prolegomena and throwing out the document that's name I forgot, even though I'm a philosophy major, I should, it's embarrassing. But anyways, Kant, one of his great arguments of all time, not, not great insofar as I think it's true, but great insofar as its influence in the world, was this idea that we are incapable of proving that God exists. We're also incapable of proving that God does not exist. So it's a non sequitur to even have the argument. And that coming from his sort of main philosophical idea that that we see what he called phenomena, which is not actually what the thing is itself. So the world is full of noumena, things like pure things out in the world. By the time 
those things get filtered through our perceptions, our senses, our mind, and all the different sort of instruments therein, what we actually receive is the phenomena, not the real thing. We're not grasping the real thing. And so therefore, we're incapable of seeing anything beyond our senses, and even what we conceive by means of our senses is imperfect at best. Uh, So then, the idea of arguing about the existence of something that's totally outside the senses is so far beyond our comprehension that we cannot do it. So his idea is that only by means of revelation can we know God exists. The church would argue, no. We can know by human reason that God exists. So, as Catholics, we have to be able to prove by means of human reason that God exists. What are some formidable arguments for the existence of God? The fact that there's something rather than nothing. That's one of the age-old kind of arguments. Anybody else? Martyrs. That people have died for the faith. That well, and not not just even just the Catholic faith. You could argue on a large scale, the the massive, overwhelming conviction in humanity at large that there is God to the point that many people die for it. Okay. Creation. Creation. So, like in terms of like the cosmos, as opposed to the. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the classic. Paul, Paul's classic argument is the the, be- the overwhelming sort of beauty and organize, organization of creation. That's been distilled down in, even into these incredible new forms of that argument that are like that go into just how many things have to align in order for there to be life for the for the universe to exist as it does, as opposed to a universe that either collapses back upon itself or is uninhabitable. So many things have to line up that it seems impossible. Uh, no matter how many how many big bangs there are, uh, you know that it would ever happen by chance. Um, and not only does it seem impossible, it is statistically impossible. Uh, anything else? Yeah. Yeah, the massive, overwhelming majority of people who just have this sense that there is something beyond us. And in many ways, that, that kind of falls into the argument from consciousness that, we're, that we can even comprehend of something like that, that, that we're aware of ourselves and aware of something beyond us points to the possibility of something beyond us. Anyone else? What's that? San Juan Capistrano. On March 23rd, this law was returned. On October 19th, every year. Oh, yeah. Wow, I didn't know it was that precise. It's incredible. Yeah, there's there's a whole swath of arguments. Now, John Henry Newman made this great... He, he made the point that proofs of God's existence aren't necessarily... There's not There's not usually a single one that is overwhelmingly convincing, which is why you'll rarely have an argument where you like give a proof, even if you gave, you know, Kalam's cosmological argument perfectly, which is an incredible argument and, and very formidable. It was actually a Muslim who formulated that 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 part of the argument, and then it was sort of resurrected by uh, a Protestant uh, philosopher whose name is escaping me. Oh, he's great, anyways. But the he. That argument is overwhelming, but that even that argument is rarely going to take someone from you know not believing in God to believing in God. But the the collection of many arguments from many different angles are ought to be and usually are convincing as a whole. So we're rarely I mean it's it's much like a court case. There's there's rarely one argument that the prosecution or defendant gives that just seals the case. It's it's a whole variety of different arguments that come together to be overwhelmingly convincing. And that's what the church is arguing. Not that there's one single argument that proves God's existence, but that 
the variety and, and versatility of many arguments can bring us to the existence of God by reason alone. Now, the reason we need revelation is because it can't take us much beyond the fact that there's one infinite God. We can, we can, we can conclude that, but anything beyond that, the goodness of God, the, well, the goodness of God, there's various arguments that could point to that, but the, any sort of personal God, any sort of um, God that is interacting with, with uh, creation by means or eternal life or anything like that, we can't make an argument by reason alone. So we need, in order to know anything about God, we need revelation. So it reaffirms that, but then it, it, it takes us deeper into sort of the handing on of revelation. So we move into, in paragraph 7, the tradition of the church. So we have the scriptures, and we have the tradition of the church. And we usually divide it up like that. Like, we have tradition over here, and we have scriptures over here. Whereas the church fathers didn't think of it that way. We've thought of it that way since the Reformation, because in many ways, scriptures have been, in a weird way, this almost divisive force. Um, because, well, because of the argument of scriptures alone um, makes them a divisive force. But the church fathers would have thought of the scriptures as a part of the tradition that's been handed down in the church. Because the scriptures are infallible because the church says they're infallible. So there, there's this collection of documents of apostolic origin that are a part of the tradition that's been handed down by the apostles. But there's, according to the church, much more than that. Now, that that isn't necessarily clear what that means, though. So what would you think of as the tradition of the church, apart from the scriptures themselves? If you had to name what you what, what we think of as the tradition. So the hierarchical, the hierarchical structure, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely part of the tradition. Um, certain parts are part of the core of the tradition, which I'll get into, and then certain parts are part of the sort of moving and, and changing tradition. Uh, but it's certainly the sacraments. Yeah, the seven sacraments would be the most concrete form because we can point to those in the scriptures, but they're certainly way more developed. There's a scriptural basis, but, I mean, especially when you think of the anointing, there's like one piece of scripture that points to the idea of the anointing. Um, when we're talking about in James, you know, if someone's sick, send for the priest of the church, let them anoint them with oil. Um, you, you actually, that's the scripture we read in every anointing, because it's the only scripture that points to the idea of the anointing of the sick. But it's, it's been there from the very beginning, and we're like, well, that's part of the, that obviously, there was obviously more spoken about that. It was just never put down in the scriptures that were that then became the canon of the church because they wouldn't have just taken that and made a sacrament out of it, you know. What else other than this sacrament? What about so th- just think about like you can think about it via negativa if you have friends who aren't Catholic, Protestants friends, what are the questions they drill you with all the time? Because those are usually the things that we consider part of the tradition because they're like, those aren't in the scriptures. Like Mary praying Yeah, so, so the, many of the traditions on Mary, most of which are found in what we call the Proto-Evangelium of James, which is another, another gospel, but was not brought into the canon of the scriptures because it's not of apostolic origin. It's very early. We can think it's like 200, maybe, so it's, it's a church, it's a document of the church fathers, which talks about the childhood of Mary and points to many of the traditions we have. If you look at icons in the Eastern church, many of the icons are icons that sort of point to that. St. Joachim and Anne, where do they come from? The mother and father of Mary, they're from the Proto-Evangelium of James. So it's an early document, not a document of the scriptures, but a document sort of taken into the tradition. 
And then the Assumption and the, the Immaculate Conception, those two would be part of the tradition of the church. Yeah, so the Eucharist, which is, yeah, which would be one of the sacraments, but certainly like even the structure of the Mass, which isn't, which is pointed to in many places in the scriptures, but if you read something like the Apology of St. Martyr, of, or of Justin Martyr, which is 130 AD, and you read his description of the, the Mass, which he doesn't call the Mass, I think he calls it the, the Sunday Eucharist or the Sunday celebration or something, he it is, you read that and you're like, wow, that's just pretty much word for word exactly what we do on Sunday, a thousand years later, it's incre- or two thousand years later. Incredible. Um, which actually, that document had a lot of influence on Sacrosanctum Concilium, which was sort of ta- trying to take, the church fathers in general had a lot of influence on sort of restoring the mass to its primitive form and, and taking out a lot of the redundancies that it that had developed over the years. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I wanted us to point to in the tradition. Oh, I guess the other part would maybe be just the moral teaching of the church, because there's a lot of, especially when you get into bioethics or sexual ethics, there's just a lot of topics that were not directly answered in the scriptures. If you think about Jesus' moral teaching, the specifics he goes into there's not that many specifics. He doesn't often he doesn't address very many specific topics in terms of moral teaching. He gives a a deep overarching law on charity which the church has had to apply specifically to different topics over the last 2000 years. It's like, you know, what does Jesus have to say about gene editing? What does Jesus have to say about in vitro fertilization? What does Jesus have to say about uh you know, like eliminating all of the mosquitoes from the world in order to get rid of malaria. Is that a just thing? Is that a moral thing to do? I don't know. I, the church has to dig into those by applying the principles we have within our tradition. And, and then those become a part of the tradition of the church. But the scriptures, it's, it's hard to take any... I mean, when we, when we start to apply the church, the, the scriptures, like things that are... Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, we'll get to it. Okay. So, we get, now, let's dig into the scriptures, because now we have a sort of grasp on tradition is everything in the church outside of the scriptures. What does, in what way does God inspire the writers of the scriptures? So, what does it mean for the Bible to be divinely inspired. It's not perfectly clear at first glance. When we think about the Quran, what do you know about, well, what do they, what would a Muslim tell you if you say, okay, God wrote the Quran. What does that mean? Does anyone know the story of the way in which... Yeah, Gabriel basically came down sat next to, a very aggressively sat next to Muhammad and said, write these words down. Word for word, they believe the Quran was recited by Gabriel, transcribed by Muhammad, but Muhammad is not the writer of the Quran. He's the prophet through whom the words came, but the words are God's words. Is that what we believe about the Old and New Testaments? If not, then what do we believe about the Old and New Testament? <laughs> Is God the writer of the Old and New Testament? Sure. Along that line, from what I understood, there were actually one more books. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's there, There's different numbers that people use, but at least in the early church, there was said to have been 
somewhere upwards of 200 to 250 different letters, gospels, uh, theological treatises, uh, probably not treatise, I don't know if anyone ever wrote a treatise in, at Mass, but uh, sort of catechesis, different things that were read within the liturgy for the first 100 to 150 years of the church. Because someone like, uh, I'm trying to think, even, I mean, even the Proto-Evangelium of James was read in the Mass for, for the first 100 to 100, or like shortly after it was written for, for a while until the, the actual canon was pared down. But I'm trying to think of, oh, Clement, Clement the Fourth Pope, 80 AD. So this is still within the lives of at least John. Everyone else had been martyred by then, but John was still alive. St. Clement, because the first popes went quick, they were martyred in quick succession, he writes a letter to the Corinthians. Still read that letter in the breviary every year. And that letter was read at Mass. So when he re- wrote that, the, the Corinthians received it, and they would read it, read it within the context of the liturgy. Because, And he actually follows in many ways the model of Paul uh, during the... Uh, you know, the way Paul wrote to the Corinthians and references his letter often. So there were a lot of documents written, but it was never believed that all of those documents were divinely inspired. They were documents that were edifying, and many of them were, it turned out, not perfectly sound. And so the church says, well, in the context of the liturgy, we should only be reading documents that are of apostolic origin and what we believe to be the word of God in the way that the Old Testament was the word of God. Because that was their, when they refer to the scriptures, in the scriptures, they mean the Old Testament because they didn't have the New Testament yet. And so councils started convening and there was never really one council until the Council of Trent in 1545 that declared the canon of the scriptures. Local councils did, the Council of Carthage in 397. I'm trying to think, there were a couple other councils around that time. But by 200 and... 10, Irenaeus, in a letter that he wrote to some community or, or to a friend, wrote out what he considered to be the canon, and it was the, the, the whole canon of the New Testament was there. So by 200, most churches were reading the canon that we would read now. But when you think of the Old Testament, the Eastern Church still has two books that we don't have, I think, Enoch, Book of Enoch, Second Book of Enoch. And then they actually might have a third and fourth book of Ezra. So they, they actually have more books in the Old Testament canon than we do. We have seven more books in our Old Testament canon than our Protestant brothers and sisters have. Because, well, for a variety of reasons, but the main thing was because we didn't have Hebrew manuscripts of those seven books at the time. And that was considered to be sort of... Uh, well, I mean, honestly, it was because no ecumenical council had declared anything, and so it was considered by many of the reformers still to be um, up for grabs. So that Marcion, who was a heretic in about 200, well, he was declared a heretic after he said this. He said, only the Gospel of Luke is reliable and Paul's ten letters. That's it. That's all we should be reading. And then the church said, no. So there was obvious, obviously a canon forming that was not that, but up until maybe three, four hundred, it was. Uh, they were still being sort of decided by many of the local councils. Now, once we get this, these 27 books, not once we get them, but how do we decide what those are? First, the Gospels, in particular, had to be of apostolic origin. So they had to be written by an apostle. So that makes sense with Matthew. It makes sense with John. What's the deal with Luke and Mark? Yeah, so so then in what way are they of apostolic origin? Yeah, so the, the tradition is that Mark was literally writing down what Peter's saying from jail right before he dies, and that's why it's the gospel in a hurry. That's why it's a shorter gospel. That's why it's in many ways sort of blunt, um, because they got limited time. And uh, 
So that's the tradition behind that. Um, I love the Gospel of Mark for that reason. It's just uh, not because it's short, but because it's like, it's just, uh, it's very, I don't know, it's just beautiful in, in the way that it's written. And then the Gospel of Luke, what's the, yeah, so Gospel of Luke is basically the Gospel of Paul, which is fascinating because Paul is just fascinating in general, but because Paul literally received the gospel from God outside of the normal time and space, which is a whole study in itself, which is, uh, I didn't take up the rest of this six sessions if you let me get into it, so I'm not going to get into it, but, the, but that's the apostolic origin of Luke. And also Luke was there. He was a disciple throughout the whole time. There's that great story, you know, in the, in the garden when the, when the soldiers come and they're grabbing all the apostles and then, and then there's, in Luke's gospel, there's this little aside that's like, and there was someone, there was one of the disciples standing off to the side and the soldiers went to grab him and he shook off his cloak and ran away naked. That, this, they're like, why would you, who, what, who's that? That's Luke. Luke was there in the garden and, and that happened to him and he just had to throw a little shout out to himself in the gospel. Uh, I just think that's a hilarious note. So here's the, I think, this is the wording that we use for the way in which God spoke through the writers of the scriptures. And I think the church, this is a really beautiful description of which, like a description of the way in which God speaks. So those divinely revealed realities, which are contained and presented in the sacred scripture have been committed to writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we know that. For Holy Mother Church, relying on the belief of the apostles, holds that the books of both the Old and New Testaments in their entirety, with all their parts, are sacred and canonical because written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They have God as their author and have been handed on as such to the church herself. In composing the sacred books... God chose men, and while employed by him, they made use of their powers and abilities, so that with him acting in them and through them, they, as true authors, consigned to writing everything and only those things which he wanted. So the the church is saying there is that God communicated what he wanted to communicate to us for our salvation. The fullness of what he, we needed for salvation is communicated through the Old and New Testaments. However, it's not by means of God speaking, you know, as the Quran was written, which is write these exact words. Because in many ways, that's impossible in human language to do. The only way you could maybe say that we could do it is the way that the Muslims say, which is, God spoke in Arabic, therefore, in order to read the word of God, you have to read it in Arabic. The Quran is not considered the Quran unless it's in Arabic. It's not, so God is limiting himself to that one language. However, if he's employing he, humans and human powers, he is actually sort of opening up the ability of He's sort of expanding out the abilities of human beings to both interpret that, which, which lends itself to a certain danger. So God has made himself vulnerable in that sense because you can translate it poorly or you can misinterpret the words or, you know, over the years, uh, language changes. So there is a certain danger there, but it actually makes perfect sense in the history of salvation for God to act in this way. Because that's the, always the way in which he's operated. He's operated in the world, but by means of us. So the church operates that way in every other way. And so it operates that way through the scriptures. However, we can know for sure that all that is necessary for salvation is present within the Holy Scriptures. All the truths are made manifest. Now... That doesn't make it easy to draw out those truths, which is obvious when you look at the massive variety of interpretation that we see of the Holy Scriptures. 
we can all read certain passages from Paul and come up with totally different <laughs> interpretations of those passages because Paul is difficult to read. We could all read the same passage of, let me think. I mean, Paul's always my favorite example. Yeah, oh, Revelation, don't you? Yeah, yeah. That, that one's difficult. I mean, the church actually had a hard time including Revelation in the, in the canon. That was the last book to be sort of solidly included in most lists because it's such a difficult book to interpret. Um, and it's because, and because of our propensity to always want it to be the end of the world uh, for some reason. And yeah, we're both like fascinated and terrified by that. So, paragraph 12. Since God speaks in sacred scripture through men in human fashion, so through our imperfections in a human way, but he speaks clearly. He said, since it's in human fashion, we should carefully investigate the meaning the sacred writers really intended and what God wanted to manifest by means of their words. The church fathers immediately identified the forms of scriptures or the, the different voices that exist within the scriptures. Is this a historical book? Is this a prophetic word? Because if it's a prophetic word, we shouldn't interpret it the same as a historical book. Is it a poetic word? If it's poetic, we shouldn't interpret it the same as a prophetic or a historical and, and then, beyond that even, so we have the forms of Scripture, and we interpret it accordingly. And then beyond that, we have to interpret it within the context of that whole work. And then in the context of the whole canon of Scriptures, and the pedagogy within it. So it's not easy. We have this desire sometimes to just pull out a single verse and say, this is, you know, this is everything. This is what, clearly what God's saying in this verse. And it's not that easy. We want it to be that easy, but it's not that easy. It doesn't mean that God can't speak to us through a single word in the scriptures. Of course he can. But when it comes to a real interpretation of it, we have to look at the sort of both the content, the voice, and then the whole source of scriptures. That's why Genesis is... If you read Genesis as a, as a historical book through and through, you're going to run into a million problems that's going to lead to you being a fundamentalist and then having just doubting everything in the world because of that. So we have to be careful. And But I think that's a beautiful way in which to describe the, the way in which God has spoken in the scriptures and the way in which he uh, both employs our human powers but also... His will is set forth, and his and his everything he we need for salvation is still present. It's a great line that Baron mentions in one of his commentaries uh, on this on Day Verbum 13. It's from a scripture scholar named William Plasher. He says we have to distinguish from what is in the Bible from what the Bible teaches, and that's always that's an important principle to to employ. For example, it was just in the it was just in the daily readings a while ago. And it's in the book of Judges, but I forget who it is. He makes this vow to God that Yeah. He he makes a vow to God. Yeah, you had to read that one in the daily mass. So he makes a vow to God that if he wins this battle, the first thing to walk out of his house when he gets home, he's going to sacrifice to God. And when he gets home, his daughter walks out of the house. And then he sacrifices her. And if you just read that, and it's in the Bible, does that mean God condones human sacrifice? No, not at all. If you look at the whole Old Testament, God despises human sacrifice. One of the worst teachings in the Old Testament is taught because God despises human sacrifice. Why do the Israelites have to employ the ban when they come into Canaanite lands? Which means to massacre the people in those lands because those people pr practiced human sacrifice. And every single time the Israelites lived in the same place as Canaanites, they started taking up human sacrifice as part of their practices. So that's, a, that's both difficult and, I mean, that's a difficult thing helping us to interpret a difficult thing. 
Not everything in the Old Testament is a teaching of the church just because it's present. Um, even in the New Testament, things are present, things are in the Bible that are not the teachings of the Bible. Uh, because the Bible is stories. Uh, and stories are always going to have, not everything in a story is good. There's many elements to a story. Even the Gospels, and the Gospels are at the very root of the story. The story of the New Covenant and of our uh, and of our salvation. So then, just one final note before we get into the uh, actually, I guess I have two more notes. No, I'm going to skip over one of those. So, one more note before we get to the Lumen Gentium, because I'm, we're, we're running out of time and I want to get to this. One of the things that that the that comes up a lot in this document that's sort of subtle almost, because they didn't address it with the same gravity that uh, I think Pius XII did in one of his in one of his uh, encyclicals, Humani Generis, is the historical critical method. Has anyone ever read a Bible commentary and you start reading it and all they talk about in this Bible commentary is who's the author of this writing? You know, the Elohim voice or the uh, Yahweh voice or all the different voices, all the different authors that took part in formulating this document. The Whether or not this word of Jesus is an authentic historical word of Jesus or whether or not it's something that was sort of like put into the tradition later on, whether or not, uh, you know, how these different gospel books came together and who, which voice is which. And they're all in this pursuit of what was called the historical Jesus. Has everyone ever heard of that? The search for the historical Jesus. And when, when you hear this sort of search for the historical Jesus, you think, that's incredible. Of course I want to know the, who the real Jesus was behind all of the Gospels. Um, because if you think of the Gospels as a document that's trying to convince you that Jesus is the Messiah and is the true God, the Son of God, you can think initially, well, maybe, maybe things were added in later. You know, is Matthew 16, in which Peter is declared the rock upon which the God is going to build the church, when that story is in Mark and Luke, and they don't include that little passage that Jesus gives the keys to Peter and tells him he's the rock, does that mean that that's added later by the church because the church became what it was? And so we get into all these little sort of, we go down all these, you could call them rabbit holes, but you could call them legitimate investigations. Uh, I think some of them are legitimate and some of them are rabbit holes because everybody needs a PhD, and sometimes you end up down a rabbit hole when you need a PhD. Uh, but the... Uh, Especially, I, I'd say that more of the later historical critical method because there was really nothing left for them to do. And so uh, one of the great, I think it was Harnack, said that the problem with the historical critical method is that they look down this well and in search of, you know, down to the very bottom to try to find who Jesus was. And all they find is a reflection of themselves. So that's the danger with with the second we doubt the, doubt the uh, and then he went on to pretty much do the same thing in his own search, um, which was pointed out later by another historical critical method scholar. The historical critical method is a beautiful way of really digging into the scriptures. The original languages, many of these scholars are incredible. And actually, if you read Jesus of Nazareth by Benedict XVI, most of these scholars were German because the Germans loved historical critical method. And that whole book is his search. He calls it his search for the face of God. And he grew up in the midst of that. that he, he cites, I mean, if you read that, it is steeped with historical critical method theology. And, but he grounds it in these sort of principles of Vatican II, which are trusting that the scriptures are infallible, reading them in the context of the whole content and unity of the church, uh, and the church's teaching, and if we do that, 
that method can bear an incredible amount of fruit. That three-volume series by Benedict is so beautiful. It was a huge part of my conversion, actually. But the, uh, uh, there's much to be had there, but the problem is the rabbit hole, once we, once we start doubting whether something is the real word and, or not, we can end up in all different kinds of places, and then we just end up doubting the infallibility of the scriptures as a whole. So that's just a little note on historical critical method. It's borne a lot of fruit. It's sort of a thing of the past at this point. There was the first search, the second search, and the third search, and we've searched ourselves out, and pretty much uh, we have all the old documents where we're going to have. We're not going to find anything new, I don't think, anyways. There might be another Dead Sea Scrolls out there somewhere, but um, we've sought that out, and there's a lot of good to be had. And I think, honestly, if you want... A beautiful summary of all the best parts of the historical critical method, read Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, I'll probably end up giving many plugs for Benedict over the course of this series because I love Benedict. Um, I think he's one of the greatest theologians of our time. So, now I want to propose, and I guess I'll just pretty much propose it. We can have a short discussion and then call it call it a night. Uh and then we can continue it into the next session, actually. The Lumen Gentium is a document that gets, I think, to the heart of what, what the church is in the modern world. Now, the church historically has been one thing and many things. But, uh, Bishop actually talked about this. When you look at the mitre, actually much of the regalia of the bishop is a holdover from a time in which, uh, I mean, the church basically inherited Roman vestments. Our vestments are Roman. I mean, we're the Roman Catholic Church, so it makes sense to a certain extent. But they're Roman in terms of, like, the Roman secular vestments. The the vestment that, there's actually a, um, I forgot the name of it. It's the rope that the bishop wears and that he's given I'll remember it. It's there's there's a like a, one of our bones is named after it. Um, but anyways, w- the rope that the bishop is given was actually the rope that the governor was given in the Roman Empire, because in the ancient world, the bishop was the governor, uh, and you know they governed over their area because at, at a certain point everybody was Catholic, and there was a lack of people who could read, and the bishop could read, so he's the governor too. And so the, the church has been, hierarchically and structurally, when we talk about the tradition, many different things. The mitre is both, you know, there's the, the, the two swords, you know, that the pope has, but the two sort of authority, authoritative states, there's the secular and the religious that the bishop has. Now... That's not the case anymore. But so, so then, what is the church in the world, in a in a sort of normal sense? Then also, what is the church in the world in terms of our salvation? And that's the question that I think more people are interested in today. You know, the fact that the Vatican is its own state is sort of a cool thing, but it's at this point, it's like neither here nor there. Will we ever have Vatican states that expand beyond that again? Really don't think so. Um, depends on how, you know, if everybody gets snooped, maybe. You know, if there's no, no one else to rule over Italy and the Pope survives somehow, maybe they will all be ruled by the Pope again, but probably not. Uh, the, the question that really we had to get at in this time and still today is where is the church in relation to the salvation of the world and what... and how do we grapple with the salvation of souls outside of the church? And that's always been a question. It always will be a question. And Lumen Gentium, in many ways, is getting at that question. That is the sort of core question of Lumen Gentium. What is our role in the salvation of the world? And is there a sort of necessity to be within the bounds of the Catholic Church for salvation. I'll read to you just a few of the of the uh, 
Pope's words on this from the past. Gregory the Great, now the Holy Church Universal, proclaims that God cannot be fully worshipped saving within herself, asserting that they are all without her, that all they that are without her shall never be saved. Pope Innocent III, 1198 to 1216. With our hearts we believe and with our lips we profess but one church, not that of the heretics, but the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church, outside which we believe that no one is saved. Leo XIII, we profess that there is no salvation outside the church, for the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. With reverence to those words, Augustine says, if any man be outside the church, he will be excluded from the number of sons and will not have God for father, since he is not the church for mother. So there's a lot, I mean, I could go on, but I'm not going to. uh, They're all pretty much the same. What does that mean, that there's no salvation outside the church? I mean, that's that's a part of the tradition of the church, that there is no salvation outside the church. Dave Verboom, or not Dave Verboom, Lumen Gentium is asking that question. If you, if your friend who's not Catholic asks you, I mean, this is this is one of the classic sort of things that my grandpa would talk about when he was a kid. He'd have friends who'd be like, uh, hey bud, is there, you know, I'm not Catholic. Am I going to hell? He's like, yeah, that's what the church says. Uh, I like you, buddy, but I'm, not, I'm just not going to see you in heaven. Uh, you know, like that, you'd almost say it like, "Well, that's the way it is, buddy. I don't know what to say. You got to, you got to become Catholic." Uh, and, and it was almost, it, it seemed obvious that that wasn't the whole truth. At a certain point, I don't want to say it was laughable, but it was like, "What does it mean?" Because maybe in 700, so in 700, if you're in Italy or Germany at that point, nah, Germany hadn't quite been evangelized entirely. But, say, Italy or Syria or Ethiopia, where the churches were really established, and especially within the Roman Empire, and everyone was Catholic, if you weren't Catholic, it was because you were choosing not to be Catholic, and you had been excommunicated for some reason and had chosen to persist in that road. So it actually makes sense theologically to say something like that in 700 AD, which is pretty much when Gregory said it, 600 AD. Because anyone who's not Catholic is choosing not to be Catholic, and they also didn't know America existed, and so they weren't even referring to those people because they didn't know they existed. And even East Asia, there's sort of, it was like on its way to becoming, I mean, obviously hit a lot of roadblocks along the way, but there were, anyone who wasn't Catholic was choosing not to be. Now, as time goes on and we get the Great Schism, whereas, I mean, that's not considered, that, that's considered a sort of schismatic uh, group, but not, still not outside of the church in the sense of like, when the church says there's no salvation outside the church, they still have the sacraments, they still have the means of salvation. It's actually in the Reformation where you get churches that aren't schismatic in the sense that the Eastern Church is, and they actually discard many of the sacraments and reform the teachings really intensely, unlike the Eastern Church, which still has pretty much intact same teachings as the West. And and there's also like each communion that exists outside of the church in the East still exists inside the church too. Um, so there's 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 still valid sacraments, valid ordination, valid everything. Okay. You get something like a Reformed Calvinist or a Lutheran or a Radical Puritan who is validly baptized but obviously outside the church. So there's baptized souls running around everywhere, not receiving the sacraments other than baptism and maybe matrimony and maybe, uh, you know, forget. I mean, the Anglican Church, to a certain extent, for a while, ordination. This is a unique situation, starting in the 16th century and moving into today. What does it mean to be outside the church at that point, and how is God acting? It's obvious that there's grace there. So if someone asks you, I'm not, you know, I'm a, I'm a Baptist, 
Am I going to hell? What do you say? Okay, yeah, so there's, we could push it, we could push into that, but like, if you say no, then they'd say, well then, obviously it doesn't matter what church you belong to, because we can all be saved. What's your, okay. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be totally honest, it was a lot easier to be a Methodist than it is to be a Catholic, so why don't I just go back to the Methodist church if that's the case? Uh, I could be a Methodist pastor and, you know, I don't know, I wouldn't want to be a Methodist. No, no offense to Methodists. But, um, but it, it, so we, we believe that it matters, but like in what way does it matter? Uh, why do we choose to be Catholic even though it's, it's pretty obviously harder and uh, we don't get to drink coffee during church? Uh, that's, a, that's a very small thing that they get to do at the mega evangelical church in Billings that I went to. Pretty good coffee too, on the way in. It's pretty good prices too. But the, but the, it's so why, what, why does it matter that we have the liturgy that we have, that we have the huge hierarchical structure that we have? Whereas, you know, if you're a radical Puritan, if I'm a, if I'm a radical Calvinist, I can just go start my own church wherever, in a barn. So. Sure. Yeah, that, I mean, it comes down to, in many ways, the tradition. That I mean, all these things are kind of like pointing to. This is what. I'll just read this passage, and and and, and in many ways, I think it points to. Oh, we're into yeah, we're into Lumen Gentium. Lumen Gentium, paragraph eight, which is the single most controversial paragraph written in all of Vatican II. Uh, and when I read it, it's probably not going to sound immediately controversial because it's full of clauses. It sounds like Paul, actually. This is the one church of Christ, which in the creed is professed as one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, which our Savior, after his resurrection, commissioned Peter to shepherd, and him and the other apostles to extend and direct with authority, which he erected for all ages as the pillar and mainstay of the truth. This church, constituted and organized in the world as a society, subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. So I'll read the, I'll read the sentence that is more controversial. This church, constituted and organized in the world as a society, subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. That sounds a lot different than those earlier voices. So the earlier voices say, if you not are not a baptized son or daughter of the Holy Roman Catholic Church, you're anathema. You're going to hell. Whereas it doesn't say that. It says there's no salvation outside the church. So they're always careful to say, where we can't assure you of salvation unless you're within the church. That's what the church is always professed by saying that. But... Now we say the church constituted and organized in the world as a society subsists in the Catholic Church. That's the line that no one, I don't want to say no one, that's the line that has been bothersome to so many Catholics who want to just say, why don't you just say this church constituted and organized in the world as a society is the Holy Catholic Church. Why do we say subsists in instead of saying that it is the Holy Catholic Church. And, and it goes on in many ways. I think the best descriptor is to say that all divine truth is Catholic truth in that sense. So everyone who is saved, who, go, who goes to heaven, goes to heaven because of the Catholic Church. If we look at... Uh, the many goods and graces and beautiful things that we see amongst all of our Christian brothers and sisters who are outside of communion with the church, they're all Catholic things that in many ways they're living better than we are. So their love of the scriptures, I mean, growing up Methodist, that was all we had. So we loved the scriptures. We read them all the time, um, studied them day and night, because that's all you got. 
their love of sacred music. It's like a whole culture built up around music that's still alive and well today uh, in, in amongst Protestant churches. The, the missionary spirit that is very obvious because it's like, this is a Congregationalist church. We aren't even going to make it one more generation unless we evangelize. Like, we're done. You know, we, we got to evangelize every single generation. It's not like the Catholic Church where it's just like, they just kind of show up, you know, and they just kind of keep coming. Uh, and now we're, we're seeing that in the Catholic Church too, that that's not obviously true anymore. Um, and so our missionaries' zeal is being sort of spurred on again. But it's it's very obvious. You know, the Alliance Church down the block, they, they support, I think, something like a dozen international missionaries. Every, like, fully support them. Uh, it's incredible. So, So that's, uh, but all of those things are Catholic things. And and in many ways, to say that, to say that there's no salvation outside the church is still, we still would profess that to be true. It's just that development of doctrine to say, like, if you're a baptized person, I mean, most baptized people today that you talk to haven't rejected the church. They just don't even know, they don't even think of the church as the church. It's not like they have this idea that they're Protestants. None of my friends have any idea that they're Protestants. I taught European history for like 38 years. Yeah. When I covered German unification in Bismarck, got really a lot of So the the way that the way that we I guess say that is that the fullness of truth is found within the Catholic Church. So that's why it's, it says that the church that Christ founded is found is subsists in the Catholic Church. The fullness is there. Now it's not the fullness is not always active at all times. We we obviously sort of um, certain parts certain teachings are elevated. Certain teachings like when's the last time you heard someone preach on usury? You know the Pope hasn't mentioned it in 200 years. Uh, but it's still a teaching of the church, I promise you. Uh, but the to say that the fullness of tr- truth exists in the Catholic Church is not to say that there is no truth outside of the Catholic Church. That's where the syllabus of errors, uh, well, first of all, the syllabus of errors is like a rant. It's not necessarily a document of the church in that sense. It's, a, it's not a universal teaching of the church. So the syllabus of errors, I don't know if there's any errors within it, except for a line like that where you see like, the, it's there is going to be something false in any church outside the Catholic Church, but that doesn't mean there's also no truth. I mean, we can even say in Buddhism. I, I had a teacher in seminary who would bring sort of all sorts of weird Eastern. He was an expert in Eastern religions, and he'd bring them in in so far as they said something beautiful and true. And there's, of course, anyone who's searching for God. God is going to work through them. It's not like he chose Israel and then just utterly abandoned the rest of humanity. Um, that's, why, that's why it seems obvious that God exists is because he's spoken in ways that aren't perfectly clear in every culture. But there's, they're going to, if they meditate on that for 2,000 years, 5,000 years, find beautiful truths in there. So the fullness of truth is in the Catholic Church and all other churches are true and good insofar as they are in line with that. Um, and, I mean, to be honest, it's hard for me to get, like, an evangelical friend to actually say that the Catholic Church is wrong on anything. It's almost like the teachings in many of the churches today have been distilled down to such core aspects of Christian faith that they don't even, most, for the most part, contradict Catholic teaching. Even when I talk to my friends about like faith alone, and I mentioned James, I'm like, well, what about faith without works? You know, your your faith is manifest in your works. That's been the re- readings for daily mass recently. And they say, well, of course that's true. I'm like, then why are we still divided, man? But the, but it, like, in the end, it's a, it's a 
holding to the fullness of truth being in the Catholic Church does not mean that there's no possible salvation outside of it because there is now, especially after the Reformation, so much beautiful truth that's Catholic being professed and lived out outside of it. And there's baptism. And that just, that does make things, I mean, I think we've sort of realized that and come to a deeper understanding of what that teaching actually means in recent years. So that's what Lumen Gentium's in a very long-winded way, digging into, um, we only went through that one paragraph. So we can dig into Lumen Gentium a little more next week too, but we are over our time by six minutes. Um, so we'll say a glory be and continue through Lumen Gentium and then uh, into, hopefully into uh, Gaudium et Spes. I'm saving Soccer Sancti Concilium for last because, because it's, uh, that's, it's, yeah. Just doing that. So we're skipping. We're skipping it and coming back to it. All right. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.